Radio Mano Papachango. to a long overdue episode of Talking on My Ass. Toma, Toma, yeah. So this is, um, this is brought to you by someone who wrote to me on Twitter a few days ago saying it has been exactly one year since you put out the last Toma, you lazy fuck. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but... Anyway, I've been I've been shamed into it, and uh, I appreciate that because I understand that you know nobody's giving me shit about this if they don't like this these things. So that's kind. I I appreciate it. I really do. Anyway, here I am now. Um, last I recall, the last episode was my humiliation in front of the entire town of Pushkar, India. And uh, so I will pick it up from there and take it to Geiselmere, which is where I went directly after that uh, debacle, which I will not go into further in case you missed that episode. You want to go back and listen to that one and you'll know exactly what drove me from Pushkar into the desert to the west, to Geiselmere, the end of the road, the end of the train, the last bus stop, the last everything. After Geiselmere, it's just empty desert. So you get to Pakistan, uh, and that was a very militarized border, as you'll hear. Anyway, before I get into that story, I just thought I'd talk a little bit about what's going on right now because it's weighing kind of heavily on my mind, to be honest. Those of you who listen to this podcast with any regularity probably know who Justin Alexander is. He's a hardcore traveler I've had on a few times first time I think we were in Portland, he came through and, um, and then I don't know if we did another one in LA or I think we did. I seem to remember going down to the beach on his motorcycle and recording one in LA. But in any case, then, then Cassie and I saw him in Thailand and we spent probably four or five weeks with him in Thailand. We were in Chiang Mai rented motorcycles, rode up into the mountains, went to a village called Pai, uh, hung, up, hung out up there together. And uh, then we were back in Chiang Mai for a while. And uh, he was going to come down and, and visit us on an island we were staying on in southern Thailand with Viram. There's another episode. Those of you who remember Viram and his walk through Pakistan with the donkey. Anyway, I wanted to introduce Viram and, and Justin because they have a lot in common. And uh, But Justin couldn't come down because he had a thing going on with his uh, adoptive Thai family. I think his brother was entering the monkhood, so he sort of had to stay around for those ceremonies and, and wanted to be part of that, which is totally understandable. In any case... Last I heard from Justin, he, he, he had gone to Nepal and was working for a couple of months building a school there that had been, um, you know, in a village that had been wiped out by the earthquake, a very bad earthquake in Nepal a couple of years ago. So he was working there for a while, and then he went down into India and was uh, in the process of, I think he'd bought a motorcycle there 
And he was in the process of cruising around India. And then he was up in the Himalayas and met a Baba, a yogi, who invited him to come and live in a cave back in the Himalayas. And Justin decided he was going to do it. And his last couple of uh, emails were, they, they concerned me because he, the way he presented it was like, this is going to be really hard. This is really dangerous. I don't feel so good. My back really hurts. My digestion's fucked up. I don't know this guy. I, I, we don't even speak the common language, but I think he's invited me to come along and I'm going to do it because, it, you know, it's this amazing opportunity, but I don't really know what I'm getting myself into. And there was a lot of doubt and a lot of, um, uh, what's the word? He, he was concerned, but, um, but determined to do this. And I don't know. To me, it sort of sounded like a pilot saying, yeah, the weather sucks, but I really want to get to Dallas, you know, and that's that's not that's I, I don't like that combination. So I don't know, being close to his father's age, you know, I guess I forget how old Justin is, 27, something like that. You know, I'm certainly old enough to be his father. And um you know, and I feel it. I feel, I feel the caution of someone who's returned from these adventures and looks back on some of them and thinks, holy fuck, I was lucky to get out of that, you know? And when you're there, you don't think of it that way. And, um, but the thing is, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an asshole, but, um, there's a certain amount of narcissism that underwrites this kind of adventure. And by that, I, I'm not, I certainly don't mean this as a criticism of Justin, because I recognize that uh, this is true of me, this is true of, of everyone who does dangerous things. And you know, I don't know how dangerous the things I did were. I did dumb things. I rode motorcycles in foreign countries. I um, took drugs that I didn't really understand. I, uh, I, you know, got arrested and got into weird scrapes with police in places where I didn't. I was very vulnerable. I had drugs in my backpack crossing borders that could have landed me in foreign prisons for a long time. So I guess you could say I did a lot of shit that was dangerous and I took a lot of unnecessary risks. And the thing is what underwrote all that adventure now that I look back on it was the certainty that if anything really went wrong my family would come to my rescue. So here's this macho adventure kind of scenario, you know, me cruising around on motorcycles and yeah, you know, I'll try those drugs and I'll sneak them into Nepal and I'll sneak that out into Thailand and I'll do this and I'll do that. But underneath it all is this very kind of juvenile sense that I can do this shit because if the worst were to happen, if I were to get busted, I knew my parents would mortgage their house, quit their jobs, sell a fucking kidney, do whatever they had to do to come and rescue me. 
and I don't have a resolution for that. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that, you know, I don't know that, that in the end that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I know that I look at it now differently than I looked at it then. I didn't really articulate it that well to myself then because I think then I said, ah, nothing's going to happen. I, 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 I don't worry about it because the, the main insight I got from travel, which is an insight I cherish to this day, is that the world is nowhere near as dangerous as we are led to believe. And that's an insight that's informed my life ever since. It informs my personal relationships. It informs my work as a writer. You'll see Civilized to Death. The whole fucking book is a refutation of what I call the neo-Hobbesian vision of, of nature and human nature, which states that it's a dog-eat-dog world, that selfishness motivates all human behavior, that nature itself is an incessant struggle for domination and survival. You know, that's the sort of um, the view of, of the natural world and of human nature upon which civilization is founded because civilization is sold to us as the only escape from that ruthless uh, natural context. And when you actually look at nature, when you actually read Darwin, when you spend time in uncivilized places, what you see is that that's a bunch of bullshit. It's nowhere near as dangerous as you're told. And in fact, you're told that just like the animals in the zoo are told, oh, you know, you don't want to be out there in the wild world. Uh, you know, you, there, there are predators out there. Oh, my God, it's so dangerous out there. So that just keeps them content in their cages. That's essentially how I view these things. So I cherish that insight that the world isn't as dangerous as I'd thought and that travel isn't as risky as I'd thought, and that you can get away with a lot more than I'd thought. But on the other hand, things do go wrong sometimes. And I have to admit that when I really thought about it, I presumed, I think accurately, that my parents would have done anything to bail me out. And they were upper middle class. They had a big house in the suburbs. And my dad was a vice president of a big insurance company. So they had access to resources. They could have hired lawyers. They could have jumped on an airplane and flown anywhere in the world. They could have chartered a medical flight to get me out of anywhere in the world. So it wasn't uh, unrealistic. But fuck, it would have been horrible for them. It would have been, you know, to, to have to mortgage your house to raise money to get your kid out of of a Thai prison to have to quit your job, to fly to wherever the fuck I was when I got in trouble, to have to fly your son's body home because he overdosed on heroin or had a stupid wreck on a motorcycle in Thailand. Those were all very real possibilities, very real risks that I not only took for myself, but that I, I signed other people's names to those contracts pain that my parents would have had to withstand if something had gone seriously wrong is far more than whatever pain I would have had to withstand. And I have to acknowledge that, that that's part of my trip anyway. Maybe other people do it differently, but that's part of my trip. Why am I saying all this? Uh, I'm saying this because Justin's missing. And uh, there, he, he was expected back 
Uh, a couple of weeks ago, nobody's seen him, nobody's heard from him, and everybody's worried. And so they're starting, some of his friends have gotten together, they've started raising money to mount a search operation to see if they can find him, find out what's going on. And my last correspondence with Justin, he ended by saying, if I don't come back, don't come looking for me. So when I saw these things on Facebook, people saying, yeah, we're raising money. Where's Justin? We're worried about Justin. We're going to go look for him. The first thing I thought was the dude doesn't want to be looked for, right? The dude, the dude made his choice and he, he's out there, you know, maybe he's just seeing things that he doesn't want to stop seeing. Maybe he's found a, a village somewhere in the mountains and he's decided to stay there. And the idea, oh my God, I got to go like take a three-day trek to get to some town that has an internet cafe so I can post something on Facebook and so a bunch of people won't worry about me. People who I told I was going into the mountains, people who I told don't worry about it, don't come looking for me. You know, that's a giant pain in the ass. So maybe he's trying to live in a way that uh, a couple of decades ago you could have you could have done easily but now with the internet everybody wants to hear from you all the time so i don't know i'm conflicted i'm conflicted when they contacted me my first reaction was like leave the dude alone fuck it he you know he knows what he's doing he's an expert in in wilderness survival if anybody's going to be okay he's going to be okay and if he's not okay it's a it's a risk he undertook freely uh, on his own uh, what are you going to do and how are you going to find a dude in the Himalayas? I mean, come on. But but then I thought about it and I thought how quickly we change from don't worry about it, I'll be fine to someone please help me. All it takes is an instant. All it takes is a snake bite or a broken fucking leg or somebody pointing a gun at you or, uh, you know, a million different things can happen that suddenly completely reconfigure your sense of where you are in the universe and whether or not you need help. So in the end, I, I contributed some money to the fund and fuck, I don't know. I hope he's all right, obviously. And I really hope he's not going to be very annoyed <laughs> that people started worrying about him and uh, got into his business. But at least they'll know that uh, there are a lot of people who love him and, and are concerned for him. So, and maybe he'll, he'll think about it next time he does something like that. He'll, he'll be more explicit or he'll, you know, work out a way to make sure everyone knows he's okay. Because that's the thing, you know, no man is an island, right? Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. And one of the illusions of the sort of travel that he's doing and that I was doing is that, no, it's just me. I'm alone. I'm just, I'm this solitary, heroic figure out here in the world. And the fact is, you're never a solitary figure out in the world. You're never truly alone. So that's where my head is at today. If you want to contribute to the... Uh, Help find Justin Fun. Go to GoFundMe.com and uh, just um, do a search for Justin Alexander. You'll find it there. Also on uh, Facebook, I'm sure you'll find all the information you want uh, if you search Justin Alexander. All right. In Justin's honor, let's play a little music. 
How about this works for him? A little something called Instinctive Traveler. I'm taking my way down here. 
Instinctive Traveler by Dissidenten, D-I-S-S-I-D-E-N-T-E-N, Dissidenten. Stay alive, Justin. Hope you, hope you hear this someday. Anyway, so after my thing in Pushkar, I was with my buddy Sean, the Australian that I met there, and I stuck around for a couple days because I didn't want to just flee outright. Uh, and uh, so I stuck around for a few days and then decided it was a good time to go to Geiselmere. And this was, uh, let's see, this must have been late November, early December, somewhere around there. And uh, so we got a bus from Pushkar, I guess it, maybe it went to Jodhpur. Uh, some of the made, yeah, went over Snake Mountain to Jodhpur, I think, and then uh, stopped in some other major cities. And 
So I remember a few things from that. The first thing I remember is that thanks to my horrible experience on the um, deluxe video coach coming down from Jammu and uh, Kashmir, which I think I talked about in an earlier episode where I like came as close to losing my fucking mind as I probably ever came in India and ended up sleeping on the luggage rack up on the roof of the bus. I, um, at that point I was like, Hey, I'm always going for the luggage rack. That was like flying fucking business class up there. So I told Sean about it and first he thought I was nuts, but you know, once, once I got him up there, he quickly realized that that was the way to travel. So, but now it was kind of a hassle because they didn't want to just let us up there. Cause I don't know, they were worried we'd get hurt or something and then they'd have problems. So we had to, you know, slip them a little, a little, uh, backsheesh, which I think means tip or bribe or something. Anyway, we'd slip them some money to the driver or to no, normally there's a, I think it's called a tout. Who's like the driver's assistant who deals with the passengers. So we would just slip him some money. So he'd leave us alone. And there were always Indian dudes up there. So it wasn't like there was nobody up there. Um, and I remember we were going, I think it must've been Jodhpur. Um, so Sean and I are up there and, we had stopped at there's you stop at four or five different stations in the city to pick up people and and not only people but um products so they'd pass up bushels of bananas and mangoes and you know big stalks of things sugar cane bundled up and whatever they'd pass it up and and the guys who were on the roof would help so you know in solidarity we would help them as well and everyone thought that was hilarious these two you know tourist dudes up there grabbing the sugar cane and all that and it was nice because it ingratiated us with the locals and you know people would shake our hands and whatever but anyway so we're up there at one point and um we were sort of the stuff was getting shifted around and i was i was getting ready to sort of set up my little comfort zone because i had a an inflatable um sleeping pad so i would take that out and sort of spread that out a little bit give myself a little bucket seat and then set up my backpack so i could lean against it and i was sort of arranging all this stuff just as the bus was pulling out from the station and i had a master lock a combination lock that i had on my on my backpack and it was really good in India traveling around Asia to have your own lock especially a combination lock so you don't need to worry about losing keys because often the places you'd rent would have these rickety old locks on them that you could open with your fingernail I mean I don't know why they even bother with these things um, but they'd have like a latch just a pretty solid latch but then they'd have this terrible shitty old lock on it so if you had your own lock it was great you felt much more secure and and you know it was kind of newfangled and cool and whatever so i had this master lock and just as i was um the bus was pulling out i was shifting stuff around the lock fell off my backpack because i'd had it just sort of hanging on there but it was it wasn't locked it was open and i shifted things around and it got disconnected and anyhow it fell off the back of the bus and fuck and the bus was already moving there's no way to stop it and whatever so okay that's a goner so i kept you know i arranged my stuff i sat down and we cruised around probably another half an hour or something through the city i think we stopped once or twice got on some more bananas and you know kept going and got on some more people at the next place and kept going so we're at like the third stop since my lock had fallen off and this time we stopped for a longer time. It was a bigger station and there was more stuff coming up and more stuff going on. So we we're probably there for 15 or 20 minutes in this parking lot. And this old man rides up on a bicycle 
and he's got my lock in his hand. And he holds it up to me. And it takes me a second to realize what he's doing. First, I think he's just some guy asking me for money, which happens all the time in India. And I'm like, no, you know, whatever. And But then I see in his hand he's got my lock. And I realize this guy has just ridden his rickety old bicycle from one side of this major Indian city to the other chasing this fucking bus that, you know, he probably just missed us two or three times as he was, you know, coming in. We were pulling out again. Then, God damn it. And he kept going and he kept going. And he followed this bus all the way through the city and finally caught up with us on the other side. And there he is with my $7 master lock in his hand, holding it up to me. And I was just like, holy shit, great. Thank you, man. And I reached into my pocket and I took, when I traveled, I, I had like my money belt where I'd have serious money. And then just in my front pocket of my pants, I'd have, you know, the equivalent of five, ten dollars whatever that, you know, your daily money that you would use to buy lunch or buy a drink or buy this or that. So you're not pulling your money belt out. So I just reached in. I grabbed everything I had in my front pocket and I, I held it down to him and he shook his head no. He just gave me my lock, and he gave me one of those two-handed uh, namaste kind of things. And he smiled, and he turned and rode away. So, I don't know, a minor thing, but it's something I remember very, very clearly these many years later. How many years was it? That was 1986, probably, something like that, and it's 2016 right now. So that's 30 years. There you go. So those little details that stick with you, those little unexpected moments of kindness and uh, generosity that really, really stick with you. So anyway, we, uh, we continued. We rode through the desert and um, finally got to this place, Geiselmere. Now, Geiselmere, I'll, I'll put up some photos that I, I took on the website, um, but you can also just Google Geiselmere. You'll see it's a spectacular place. It's um, built in this big sandstone fortress in the middle of a sand desert. I think it's called the, was it the Saar Desert? S-A-A-R, I think. Um, it's very dry out there. And uh, so there's this big fortress and it's like, you know, it's the kind of thing you imagine when you read those Thousand and One Nights kind of books, you know, it's that exotic desert India. I remember the men, it's the only place in India where the men were attractive. Uh, other parts of India, I felt the men were kind of squirrely looking and, you know, a little nervous dudes, but um the men in Rajasthan, and particularly in around Jaisalmer, were these uh, were bigger. They were physically more. They had beautiful bodies. They had big uh, mustaches. They, they all had a big mustache, and they wore orange turbans, and uh, they were dignified looking. And I remember they a lot of them were on horseback or on camels. They had those shoes where the toes curl back. And they, uh, a lot of them had old bolt action rifles, like that the British must have left there from, you know, the 30s, the 20s and 30s. So there was this very militaristic kind of vibe, uh, but, but also very beautiful. 
And so you're in this fortress and there was, um, because Pakistan and India were uh, at, in great conflict in those days. In fact, it was felt that if there were to be a nuclear war, that's probably where it would start. It was on the Indian-Pakistani border. Um, India was supported by the Soviet Union. Pakistan was supported by the United States. Uh, I think I've probably mentioned before, India was a bizarre place then because of its alignment with the Soviet Union. There was very little capitalism there. There was... You know, there's one kind of car. There were no Toyotas or Fords or, you know, nothing. It was just the the ambassador. One kind of car. The whole country. If you had a car, that's what you had. Um, There was no Kentucky Fried Chicken and Burger King and McDonald's and all that bullshit. Nothing. So it was a very sort of uncommercial place. And uh, I think Gorbachev came to visit on that trip when I was in India. So that'll, if I've got the dates wrong, you can Google Gorbachev's visit to India, and that'll tell you exactly when I was there. Anyway, so uh, we get to Jaisalmer, and we got a room actually inside the fortress, and I believe our room was built into the wall of the fortress, It was a guest house, and we had a room that had no windows, and I think it was right on the inner edge of the wall, and I think it was built into the wall of the fortress, which is why it had no windows. So they had um, uh, bang, as they had in in Pushkar, which was this uh, preparation of marijuana that they would put into uh, lassies. So you drink a bang lassie and get a really nice buzz. And I remember one night... One of the first nights, maybe the very first night that we were there, Sean and I went out. We found this cafe that did the buying lassies, and we drank a couple of them. And Sean had been – Sean had a Walkman. And I I think I mentioned in an earlier episode that at the last minute when I was sort of doing my final pre-departure review of my packing, I decided to – save some space and uh, wait by eliminating my Walkman and my cassette tapes. So I wasn't taking any music because I thought, yeah, I'll check out Indian music. You know, I'll get to know Eastern music. That'll be better for me anyway. Well, that didn't work out real well. I didn't ever, I still don't understand Indian music and there's not a lot of it that I enjoy in its pure form. I can dig some sort of westernized fusion stuff as you just heard, but uh, actual Indian music in the 1980s. No, no, I wasn't, I wasn't hearing that. So I was desperate. I was so hard up for music and Sean had a Walkman and three or four cassettes and, uh, he was very generous and let me listen to it on bus rides and stuff. And I remember he had a, uh, Rolling Stones, like a best of Rolling Stones and a best of Talking Heads. And I listened to the two of those again and again and again and again and again. And he kept saying, like, you should check out um, Midnight Oil. I've got this Midnight Oil stuff that's really good. And it's like Midnight Oil. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Australian band. You know, they're kind of punk influenced and like, eh, you know, well, I don't know. Punk doesn't really do much for me. And. Australian band, yeah, okay, whatever. But, you know, let me just keep listening to the Stones and the Talking Heads. So I so I just kept putting it off, putting it off. So one night, that night we had these bang lassies. We go back to the room, and Sean falls asleep, and it's pitch, pitch black in there. Like, it could not have been darker. I think I had a candle going or something. But I decide, okay, this is 
this is the night I'll listen to Midnight Oil, right? My mind is totally open. I'm going to check this stuff out and I'll give it my full attention. I'm stoned out of my mind, but I'm very perceptive and open. So I put in the Midnight Oil tape. I blew out the candle and I lay back in total darkness and I listened to this cassette. I listened to side A, I listened to side B. I was blown away. I was amazed at this music and I could not understand why Sean hadn't explained to me how brilliant this music was, that that it was so experimental that they were recording some of the tracks at one time signature and other tracks at a different time signature and they were overlaying them in ways that they meshed together but that you could tell that this instrument was being played at this speed and that vocal was at that speed and it was this incredible five-dimensional production process and so spacey and like wilder than Pink Floyd in some ways, just so fucking experimental and interesting. I listened to the whole thing and was just blown away by it and went to sleep. And in the morning, we went off, we were getting breakfast and I said, oh, by the way, I listened to that Midnight Oil. Holy shit, dude. Why did you not tell me about this production thing and the, the different time signatures and the some of it playing backwards and some forwards? And, and he's... I'm expecting him to to be like, yeah, you get it, cool. But he's looking at me like very confused. He says, what are you talking about? And he picks up the cassette and he looks at it. He says, dude, the batteries are dead. (laughs) So I had just listened to this whole cassette with these like almost dead batteries. And instead of realizing the batteries are dead, I just thought it was really interesting music. Yeah, chalk it up to the bang. As it turns out, I I like Midnight Oil a lot, even with fresh batteries, um, but it's nowhere near as uh, experimental and interesting as uh, with dead batteries. Um, yeah, I still, still when I hear some Midnight Oil songs, I can hear them at the half speed. And, you know, yeah, there are a few songs that I'll always hear that way. Anyway, so Sean and I decided to... Uh, go on a camel safari, which is one of the things that they do there in Geisel Merrick because it's the end of the road. And as I said, there's just, just this desert and, and, you know, that militaristic vibe, you've got the, the, the castle, the fortress, you've got these dudes riding around on their camels with their weird shoes and their bolt action rifles and their turbans and their mustache. And then every seven minutes, you've got, uh, a formation of Soviet-built MiG fighter jets patrolling this border, just flying back and forth all the time. They're all up there all the time in three, always in threes. So it's like this medieval slash, you know, extremely ultra-modern, high-tech militarism everywhere. It's very, very strange. Um so we decide we're going to go on this camel safari. I think it was like four days or something in the desert. And uh, so we get these guys, these two dudes, and they take us back. They're camel guys. And camels are, I don't know if you spend any time with camels, but they're a, a very special kind of stupid animal. They are like, 
The guy explained he had to keep smacking it in the head so it didn't fall asleep and fall over. That's the only way to keep it awake. Um, they, because they're ruminants, which I guess you know most uh, grazing animals are ruminants, meaning they've got several stomachs and they ferment the grass because you can't actually digest the grass directly. So they've got like fermentation vats. They've got several stomachs and. Um, so that you know, they always have sort of bad breath because there's a lot of uh, like they swallow it, mix it with the gastric juices, then bring it back up and keep chewing it. So there, it's it's like that. If you sort of puke in your mouth a little, you know that kind of smell. Well, they do that every day. And the thing about the camels is, since they don't really have saliva, because they're designed for uh, to minimize the loss of any sort of uh, liquid. Their mouths are really dry, but they spit and they fart and they're 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 kind of mean and ah, I I didn't like the camels very much. But we toured around out in the desert. They took us to some abandoned cities, actual city. I mean, city, medieval city, ancient city, but big complexes of buildings that had been abandoned hundreds of years ago when the water ran out, and. Uh, that was pretty intense, um, sort of like a Pompeii kind of vibe, you know, just daily life was just abandoned. And, uh, yeah, just sleeping under the stars, you know, amazing desert sky, shooting stars all the time, very clear. I don't remember what we ate, <clears throat> you know, canned stuff probably, but... Anyway, we, uh, after a few days, there was a place they wanted to take us to, you know, they had a circuit that they did. And so this was part of the circuit. It was a place, uh, where there was one building, there was a tree, one big shade tree. And we hadn't seen trees in days, probably. <laughs> oh, wait, okay. Wait, before we got to this place, I remember we were coming along and we hadn't seen anybody for a couple of days. And we're coming along, and Sean and his camel guy are up in front, and, and I'm in the back with the other camel guy, two people per camel. And uh, and there were a couple of goats, and there was this little Indian kid with the goats. And the kid just stopped and was looking at us like we had come from outer space. He was just like open-mouthed, uh, amazed, look at these guys. And... As Sean's camel came up even with the kid and the kid staring up at him, Sean leans down and says, Wop, bop, do bop, wop, bing, bam. <laughs> the, kid, the kid didn't know it was a joke. He, he thought that was our language, I'm sure. Oh, fuck. Anyway, so uh, that's from what song is that? Good golly, Miss Molly? Wop, bop, boo, bop, wop, bang, bam. Uh, tutti Fruity. Oh, Tutti, tutti Fruity, yeah. Uh, Little Richard, I think. Anyway, so these guys take us to this place. There's a shade tree, and the reason we're going there is they have Coca-Cola, and Coca-Cola is this incredible uh, luxury item out there in the middle of nowhere. 
you know, somebody's brought these hot little bottles of Coca-Cola out on a camel and, you know, at great expense and effort. So they're, they've got Coca-Cola at this place and these guys take us there and they, you know, we tie up the camels and Sean and I go sit under the shade tree and with our hot overpriced bottles of Coca-Cola for which our camel guys are getting a kickback, I'm sure. And uh, so we're sitting there and as we're talking, uh, two more camel guys come in with two other foreigners, the women. And they go and get the Coca-Cola, and then the women go sit under this by this other wall where there's some shade sort of across the courtyard from us. And they're talking, and they're having their Coca-Cola. And they keep – one of them, this blonde, keeps looking over at us and then talking to her friend and then looking at us and talking to her friend and looking at us and talking to her friend. And it's like, okay, so whatever. She must – maybe she, <laughs> she, like, knows me from Pushkar or something. I don't know. And she gets up, and she walks over, walks right up to me and says – Excuse me, are you Chris Ryan? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, do we know each other? Well, we went to college together at Hobart College in upstate New York. And I knew you because you were a a TA in my class and I was in the class. Holy fuck. Holy fuck. I'm at the most remote place I've probably ever been in my life. And I'm recognized and I, and I'm not famous at all. There's no, there's, there's nothing to do with being famous. This is just how hard it was. Even then, even then before the internet, before all this social media web had, you know, covered and strangled the planet, even then you couldn't get away. I remember thinking like, holy shit, thank God I didn't like rob a bank and, you know, come to live in Rajasthan thinking no one would ever find me because I'm here a couple of weeks and already somebody found me and they're not even looking for me. Crazy. Anyway, so we get back to town, hanging out in Geiselmere for a few more days. I think we're back at the same cafe where we found the Bang Lassies and we're hanging out there and Sean and I are there and uh, there's a table next to us of uh, three women, Western women. And they're talking, and uh, one of them is one of them is about to go on a camel safari, or at least she wants to go on a camel safari, but she doesn't want to go alone, and she's trying to talk the other two into going. But one of them's already done a safari, and the other one is on her way somewhere else, and neither one of them wants to do it. But they both sympathize with her not wanting to do it alone, because she's going to be out in the desert all by herself for four nights with some Indian dude, you know. The the chances of uh, misunderstanding or rape are quite high, and she wasn't feeling safe. And so I'm not, you know, trying to overhear this, but I'm sitting right next to them, and they're speaking English, so I hear what they're saying. And and I realize I've got, you know, I flew to India straight from New York, from Manhattan, where I'd been living for a few years. So I brought some of my uh, Manhattan mentality along with me. And one expression of that was that I brought a little canister of mace that I had with me in New York. My secretary had this job selling mace. I don't remember what it was exactly, but she had some sort of side job selling these little like mace canister keychains. New York in the 80s was a lot rougher than it is now. So if you're living in New York listening to this saying, that's ridiculous, well, talk to someone who lived there in the 80s. There was a lot of nasty shit going on. 
and walking around with a can of mace wasn't really such a bad idea. Um, but anyway, I brought this mace with me to India, uh, you know, on the airplane. Great idea. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Bring a fucking canister of mace on an airplane. Yeah, nothing can go wrong there, right? Uh, anyway, so I had this mace, and, and shortly after arriving in India, I realized this place is not dangerous. Nobody's going to, I'm never going to need mace, you know? So it had just been stuffed into some forgotten pocket of my backpack for the last couple of months. And I heard this woman talking about her concerns and I thought, Oh, here's the perfect opportunity. Cause I didn't want to just throw it away. I don't know. So I, I sort of, I went over to their table and I said, look, I'm sorry to interrupt. And, you know, I overheard your conversation and here's the thing. I've got this mace and I'm not going to use it and I don't know what to do with it. If it would make you feel more comfortable, I'd be happy to give it to you and you could take it. And, you know, you know, worst case scenario, it's sort of a, you know, it's a last resort measure to defend yourself if something gets weird. And she's like, oh, thank you. That's so nice. That's really thoughtful. I don't know. So I was like, oh, I'll be back in 20 minutes. So I went to the room, got the mace, came back, gave it to her. And that was the last I heard of it. So uh, then Sean and I went back to Pushkar. And we were hanging out in Pushkar for a while because it was uh, New Year's Eve. And we wanted to spend New Year's Eve in Pushkar. I think there were some people we knew there or something. So we were in Pushkar again. And I was back up on my rooftop. Shameless. Totally shameless. Uh, and, uh, New Year's Eve, I was walking down the street and I see this woman walking toward me and we see each other and like, Oh, Hey, you from Rajasthan, right? Oh yeah. You, Oh yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I don't know. She had just arrived and she didn't know anyone. And I was going to this party. So you want to come with me to the party? Okay. We got to the party. And so we ended up spending the evening together. A couple of very strange things. Uh, first of all, it turns out when we have that where are you from, where'd you grow up conversation, that she and I had graduated from the same high school in Casanova, fucking New York. Tiny little town. We had graduated from the same high school. She was a few years older than me, so uh, we didn't know each other, and I had only lived there for a couple of months. I just, uh, in I think the first edition of the Toma podcast series, I talk about, or maybe the second, or I don't remember, but one of them I talk about graduating from that school and uh, how I had just been there for a couple of months and then uh, at the end of the senior year. Anyway, so we're both from, you know, we had both lived in this tiny little town in upstate New York. Bizarre. We spent the evening together. I don't remember her name. She was great. She was really cool, um, uh, very strong. She she was a mountain climber and I think a runner. She had climbed um, Akan, Akangawa, I think it's called, the highest mountain in South America. She was very physically fit and, and had a beautiful body and just really and cool. I liked her. Very adventurous kind of woman. And... Um, so we had a good time. And then, uh, you know, it's New Year's Eve and uh, I invited her back to my rooftop pad and she came back with me. Now, you have to understand, I it's different now uh, from what I hear. But in those days, if you wanted to travel in India as a man, you either went with your girlfriend or accepted the fact that you were not going to have sex very often. You were, in fact, not going to have sex at all, very probably, because 
the chance of hooking up with an Indian woman is 0.0. Unless, I mean, maybe they're Indian prostitutes or something, but, you know, whatever. I was never into that, and I wouldn't even have known how to go about it anyway. But hooking up with just a regular Indian woman in a town, you know, no, zero, no, you like not even eye contact, not even like brushing up against them on a bus. It's completely forbidden out of the question. So women, Western women who are traveling are almost always traveling with their boyfriend or with a woman friend with whom they have made a pact signed in blood that neither one of them is going to get involved with a guy and abandon the other one. So your chances of hooking up with a woman are, practically speaking, uh, extremely low. So I probably hadn't had sex in a year nine months a year i don't know a long time which when you're 26 27 years old uh or 20 i guess i was 24 i don't know whatever mid-20s that's a that's a lot longer (laughs) that's a real real long time and you're in you're you know doing all these adventures and you're in this incredibly sensual place where everything smells and textures and colors and feelings and so you're just so alive and sensually open and but there's no sex there's no woman there's no ass there's no curves there's no smooth body contact there's none of that and oh my god so so this woman and i go back to my rooftop and uh and it's great it's new year's eve you know it's gonna happen and i'm feeling it and she's feeling it and we're into it and we're just making out and it's really great and oh my god the stars and push car and uh and then at the last minute she says she stops and she says no no i'm sorry i can't i can't do this Uh, why what's wrong oh i just can't i can't i'm like wow all right well you know if you don't want to do it then then we shouldn't do it but but did i do something wrong did i hurt you did i say something no no it's not you it's not you you're great you're great i, I just i i just have a rule i have a personal rule and i never break it and i i i want to but i can't i said what's your rule she cuz i had condoms and stuff you know and uh she said her rule was she said, I never have sex with two men in the same menstrual cycle. Like, okay. I mean, I guess, I don't know. That's if she got pregnant and this way she'd know who the father was, I guess, is, is the thinking behind that. But like I said, I had condoms, so I don't know. And it was just this personal rule. And I'd never heard that before, but okay, people have their rules, whatever. All right, well, okay, okay, so we'll go back to looking at the stars, you know? So we sort of lie back and look at the stars, and I'm trying not to feel embittered or, you know, too disappointed or whatever, even though, fuck. And then I said, well, I I sort of got this feeling. I said, who was the other guy? And she looked at me. And I knew she didn't even have to tell me, but she did eventually. But the minute she looked at me, I knew who the other guy was. 
the fucking camel guy. Thank you. 